Welcome to episode 65 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week we have, actually, heads up, this is going to be a really long episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Really long. I I did a lot of research for this true crime, and I'm really excited to share it with you all. But it is going to be a longer episode. Just a heads up. So see, you can break it up and listen to us all week. All week. (laughs) We will be telling true crime and paranormal stories from the state of Florida. Like I said, I have the true crime. Mom has the paranormal and the drink. I just brought along the guest of honor. Uh Of honor. (laughs) I think that's what we're calling these things now, right? Guest of honor. Sure, honey. Alex, Mm -hmm. this cocktail is for you. You asked for it. And your darling mother-in-law <laughs> granted it oh to Oh, boy. You. Wow. Everybody's just tooting their own horn over here. <laughs> yeah, we have to because, you know, we do. All right. So. Because you won't for us. So we have to do Oh, it, so. boy. <laughs> I was going to say that, but then I backed up. <laughs> You're like, is that too mean? No. Just mean enough. Oh. So, Alex, there was a few episodes back where you asked for a rum and coke. Okay. So I am going to present you with a rum and coke. But specifically no this is going this specifically this is going to be a Bacardi rum and coke. Okay. Okay. And there's right. no like hidden lime, like no. hidden anything in there. No, straight up. <laughs> it's just regular rum the and way, coke. The way you like it. I made it for you, obviously, because okay. this is being recorded virtually, but That's I right. did not add any lime, anything, no surprises. Okay. It is a Bacardi and diet. Wow. I, I'm kind of shocked. <laughs> There's nothing floating around in it. It, nope. it seems normal enough. Nothing okay. too citrusy. <laughs> okay. I want to, first of all, give a shout out to um, a bartender named Alex. <laughs> no, a bartender what? named Max. Wow. <laughs> I was going to say. I. This is working out awesome. great. <laughs> Perfect. No problem. Okay. First of all, I want to give a shout out to Max. He's a bartender at the Speakeasy here in town, and the guy knows his stuff. I mean, he never ceases to amaze me with his knowledge. And recently, we were visiting the Speakeasy, and he asked, so what's next on the podcast? Because every time I'm down there, I ask him for little suggestions. And again, he came through when I said, we're doing Florida. And he took me by surprise when he told me Bacardi rum was originally from Cuba. I didn't know that. I looked a little into the subject, and I'll share that with you in a roundabout way, and we'll end up in Florida, I promise you. But Alex is dying, so can he take a drink of his beverage yet? No, he's going to sit through this whole thing. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) He's drooling over here. I know. I see you drooling. So go ahead and have a sip of your Bacardi and Coke. I mean, I'm the bartender. (laughs) No, Max is the bartender. (laughs) All right, so this is, I mean, I love this too. I, I ordered this. Very normal, Actually, this perfect. Was, Thank you. Yep, this is the first drink I drank uh, after COVID. It was like the first thing I tasted. Oh, there you so, go. Kudos there. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> All right, so you've tasted it. Now you can drink it as I'm telling you how it got to Florida. Spanish-born, uh, fac- fac- wow. facando. Just name him Alex and make yourself. 
just name just name him Alex and we'll just <laughs> move on. <laughs> Fasando. Okay. Spanish born Fasando Bacardi was sixteen when his family moved from Spain to Cuba. And in eighteen sixty two he opened the first rum distillery in Cuba. As with all marketing, the bottles needed a logo, and it was the idea of his wife to use the bat with its wings spread, which was inspired by the fruit bats that lived in the rafters of the building. So in Spain, the bat symbolized family, unity, good health, and good fortune. And I never even noticed the bat on the bottle, but now I I do. I I just, I'm (laughs) blown away that Cuba is where it originated from. That's crazy. The the Bacardi is. Yeah, I would never guess that. I wouldn't. I yeah, me either. Yeah, Cuba is about the last place I would have thought, but it did. And he uh, made white rum. That was his first rum that he made. Was the white rum? Then what we're drinking in 1922, Cuba Libre had become the cocktail of choice. That's rum cola with lime, and that's translated free Cuba. So a toast during the Cuban War of Independence. Oh, in 1960, the Bacardi's, the Bacardi, in 1960, the Bacardi's association with Cuba was severed when Castro confiscated the company's Cuban assets, and the family fled to Miami, Florida. Wow, that's the tie to and Florida. <laughs> I, I will say I do like lime typically in this, but with all the citrus and the lime that we've had in the past, I do appreciate the non. I'm scared to put lime. any citrus in anything I serve you anymore. It's not a matter of like putting citrus in there. It's like the, it's like mainly. Th- those were really bad. Those were really, okay, really thank you. bad. But it was the way I made them, Alex, because. Probably not the drink. Yeah. Max, the bartender, when I said well, we were doing Indiana coming up and he said, oh, you got to do the Hoosier drink. And I said, ooh, I did that. It mm. didn't turn out well. Well, and then he told me how to do it. And so and then he I made had you a real one. I, <laughs> I had the right ingredients, but. You know, there's ways to do drinks, I guess. So that was um, even following directions. Sometimes you got to put a little bit of, you know, love in there. I'm not love. (laughs) No, I never put love in my drinks, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there you go. That's how the Bacardi rum came to Florida. And the bat made it to Florida. Well, I got an awesome history lesson. That was nice. Sorry, Beth just got back. I did. Sorry, I'm going to have to listen to all of that history when I edit. I had a. Sorry, I was. I ran up two flights of stairs. I had a toddler that woke up saying he had a nightmare. Mom duty comes first. Oh, well, but it's kind of neat that you didn't hear it because then when you hear it, I guess when you're editing, you'll hear it. But at least you're not hearing it for the first for the second time now. You'll hear it for the first time. (laughs) You'll kind of be surprised. Thank you for the silver lining, honey. You get to hear all about the Bacardi bat and how he made, like, a, a, a bat actually made this rum. What? It's crazy. <laughs> it's so, it's insane. What? That's, that's why wait. a bat's on the label. A bat yeah. made the rum. Oh, mm-hmm. my gosh. Yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> he did a heck of a job, though. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, that is the drink. I'm happy that you were pleased with it. Yeah, not only pleased, I will actually finish this one and not dump it down the sink. <laughs> oh, that's another reason I made this drink. I got tired of seeing you dump it all. Wasteful, well, thank wasteful, you. wasteful. Well, well, I think that's it for me, right? I mean, yeah, thank you, Alex, so much. 
I mean, I can stay and do the rest of the podcast. I know. You want me to just go back upstairs? Yeah, I thought we had good banter. (laughs) I thought we, you know, played well back and forth and everything. So I think you're out. (laughs) All right. Well, (laughs) take it from here, Alex. Cheers, Mama. (laughs) All right. See you guys. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye, Alex. Thank you. All right, Mom. I am very anxious for this episode. I think because I spent a lot of time doing research on this one. Another one. Yes. I pretty much watched every documentary I think I could get my hands on. I read a lot. And even Alex would tease me and come into a room and he's like, on this case again? Again. (laughs) Didn't you just watch a documentary on this as he sits down to watch it with me? I mean, (laughs) that's Alex. So for this episode, I'm actually going to start the true crime portion with a 911 call. Okay. Okay. All right. Here we go. I drove to the police department here on Persian, but you guys are closed. I need to bring someone into the police department. Can you tell me where I can, the closest one I can come into? What What are you trying to accomplish by bringing them to the station? I have a 22-year-old person that has um, grand theft sitting in my auto with me. So the 22-year-old person stole something? Yes. Is this a relative? Yes. Where did they steal it from? Um... My car and also money. Okay, is this your son? Daughter. Okay, so your daughter stole money from your car? No, my car was stolen. We've retrieved it today. We found out where it was at. We retrieved it. I've got that, and I've got affidavit for my banking account. I want to bring her in. I want to press charges. Where Where did all of this happen? Oh, it's, it's been happening. No, no, but I need to establish a jurisdiction is what I'm trying oh, to Oh, I live in um, in Orlando. Yeah, but what address did these thefts occur at? Um, well, I guess my residence, I guess. Okay. 4937 okay. Hope Spring Drive. That's actually going to be in the jurisdiction of the sheriff's office, ma'am, not okay. the Orlando Police Department. All right. Let, let me transfer you over to the communications section for Orange County. Okay. Now, is the Orlando Sheriff's Department the one on 436, that, is that open this afternoon, this evening? Uh, the substation you're at on Pershing, if it's Orlando Police, we're, we're open primarily during the day. Uh-huh. But that's not the sheriff. That's the city police, which does not right. have jurisdiction for your I know there's a sheriff's department on fifth. I mean, on 436. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to transfer you to the sheriff's communications section, and you can um, determine that. Hold on. Okay. My next thing will be down to trial thing, and we'll have a court order together. If that's what you want to say, we'll do it, and you'll never. Well, then you have No, I'm not giving you another day. I've given you a month. All right. Okay. So that is the first 911 call. Okay. About an hour later, the same woman calls 911 again. 
937 Hope Spring Drive. 4937 Hope Spring Drive. Or okay, what's happening? Um, I have someone here that I need to um, be arrested in my home. They're there right now? A possible missing child. I have a three-year-old that's been missing for a month. A three-year-old? Yeah. Have you reported that? I'm trying to do that now, ma'am. Okay, what did the person do that you need arrested? My daughter. For what? For stealing an auto and stealing money. I already spoke with someone there, so they would patch me through the Orlando um, Sheriff's Department and have a deputy here. I was in the car. I was going to drive her to the police station, and no one's open. They said they would bring a deputy to my home when I got home to call them. So she stole your vehicle? Yes. When did she do that? Um, on the 30th. I just got it back from the impound. I'd like to speak to an officer. Can you have someone come out to my house? Okay. Okay, I gotta ask you these questions so I can put them in the in the call, okay? Okay. Thirtieth of June? Yes. Okay, how old is your daughter? Twenty two. Okay, what's your name? My name? Her name. Her name Casey Anthony. Oh, that's right. I am going to be telling you all the case of Casey Anthony and her sweet, almost three-year-old daughter, Kaylee. I wanted to start with those calls to begin the story because, as you can see from the first call to the second call, things took a turn from a stolen car to all of a sudden there's a missing little girl, which is a little more important Yeah. And as much as I hate to say it, but this non-direct, nowhere near straightforward pattern you see in these calls or you hear in these calls is what you'll see throughout this whole case. The calls were made within maybe an hour of one another. I did get the calls from the trial, which was aired on WESH2 News, which is the Orlando News Channel, where this case and the trial took place. The links to the trial and these calls, as well as all of my resources for the case, can be found on our website. So if you want to watch the entire trial, I will have all the links for that. Now, now this was a big case in my day. I believe it's like the O.J. Simpson trial of my time. I was in college at the time. I mean, it was all over the media. Pictures of Casey Anthony dancing. Maybe you remember the photos, too, but photos of her dancing in a tight blue dress and just having like the time of her life during the time that her daughter was supposedly missing. I mean, it covered the pages of magazines Uh everywhere. It was on the news everywhere across the country. Like I said, it was the summer after my freshman year at college. It was 2008. And I remember those photos. I remember the news constantly covering the picketing that happened outside the Anthony home. Mm -hmm. I remember just how angry America was. I remember the name, the most hated mother in America. That's right. Yeah. I remember all of this media attention, but I didn't really know the whole story, the whole case. So it's a trip. All right. <laughs> and I'm going to take you down it. <laughs> so the first 
call that I shared with you shows Cindy Anthony, Casey's mother, calling the police to report that her daughter had stolen her car. So this was Cindy and George, Casey's parents. This was their vehicle. It was registered to them. They paid for it. But Casey had been given permission to drive it for years. Like, what? It's not like, yeah. So it was kind of like their secondhand car. And like I said, she'd been given permission to drive it for a while. But when the call was made, July 15th, 2008, Cindy was calling police to have Casey arrested for stealing the vehicle as well as money. If you remember, the male 911 dispatch from the first call uh-huh. is having the phone call transferred to the proper jurisdiction. Sheriff. Remember when uh-huh. it beep, 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 and it started to ring? Well, while it was being transferred, you heard Cindy and another person, now that you know it's Casey, having a conversation. And maybe you didn't catch it because it was, you know, it was a li- it's a little difficult to understand. Uh-huh. But I'm going to replay that part for you so that you can hear it. My next thing will be down to trial thing, and we'll have a court order together. If that's what you want to say, we'll do it, and you'll never. Well, then you have one more day. No, I'm not giving you another day. I've given you a month. All right. So. I don't know if you heard that, but she is calling 911 for the stolen money and the stolen car like we talked about. But in this portion, you can hear her threatening Casey that basically if you don't tell me what's going on, I've given you plenty of time to tell me where my granddaughter is. Oh, that's what she's saying. Okay. mm -hmm, I've given you 30 days. And that's what she says. I've given you 30 days to tell me what's going on. This is I kind of feel like. And I'll explain their relationship a little later on. But I feel like it's kind of a threat to Casey. And I'm going to get you for grand theft and stealing my money. If you don't tell me where my granddaughter is. Exactly. So she's like starting small if grand theft is small. But I'm going to start small and, you know, all of this is going to start adding up. And the next thing, and that's what she says in that, is the next thing I'm going to file for child custody or I'm going to file to to find her, Uh basically. So the child has already been missing at this point for 30 days. Yes. Oh. So yes, it had been a month since Cindy had seen her granddaughter. Casey had told her parents that she had a job. That So she worked for Universal Studios as an event planner. And she told her parents that she had some kind of job through that that was going to require her to be driving back and forth from Jacksonville to Tampa for about a week. Well, that week extended because she started having car issues and time just kept passing. And every time Cindy would call, she would talk to Casey and then request to talk to Kaylee. And there was always an excuse. She was out with the nanny. She was out at Disney World with the nanny. She was at Universal Studios with the nanny. She was at the beach. She was asleep. Casey would even pop into her parents' house for a meal or just, you know, pop in to see her parents. Kaylee? With without Kaylee. And again, there was always an excuse about it. Well, then one day, Cindy and George get a letter in the mail regarding the car that Casey had been driving around. It had been abandoned for some time and was taken to an impound lot. It had basically just run out of gas. Oh. The couple are concerned because it had been abandoned for a few days. And this is the car that their daughter and granddaughter used on a daily basis. Oh. The whole thing is really suspicious to them. Long story short, Casey's 
purse, I believe it, her whole purse, um, but there was an address book that was left in the car. And Cindy puts on her investigative hat and starts calling people. She discovers that Casey was actually shacking up with her boyfriend, Tony Lazaro. There was no job requiring her to drive back and forth from Tampa oh to gosh. Jacksonville. So Cindy, being sick of the lies and wanting to know, like, what the heck is going on? Where the heck is Kaylee? She tracks down the apartment where Tony Lazaro lives, goes there, knocks on the door, drags Casey out of the apartment. She's sick of everything. And that is when the first 911 call is made. I see. Okay. Okay. The second call is made to police back at the Anthony's home. So after the first call, they advised Cindy to either pull over on the side of the road or go home and make the call to the sheriff's office, the proper police jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. She had driven Casey to the Anthony family home where Cindy's son, Casey's brother, Lee, was waiting for them. He wanted his sister and mom to calm down he's trying you know he's taking a different approach obviously the yelling and the threatening to the sister is not working so he's taking a different approach he's very calm he sits them both down and he's like you know where's my niece what is going on Casey like what's up with the lies and this isn't going anywhere so that's when Cindy gets upset and she makes the second 911 call now I only played a portion of that call I'm going to play the rest of that call right now What's your name? My name? Her name. Her name, Casey Anthony. C-A-S-E-Y. And your name? Cynthia Anthony. Cynthia, can I get a phone number that I can reach you at? Um, 407-808-4731. And you said you have the vehicle back? Yes. And I have the um, statement. Casey's there right now? Yes, I got her. I finally found her after a month. She's been missing for a month. I found her, but we can't find my granddaughter. Okay, how tall is Casey? Um, five foot one and a half. Thin, medium, or heavy build? Thin. Color hair? Brown. What color uh, shirt is she wearing? White. What color pants? Oh, they're shorts. They're um, plaid. They're like pink and teal and white and black plaid. Does she have any weapons on her? No. Is Casey not telling you where her daughter is? Correct. Okay, we'll have a deputy out to you as soon as one's available, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Less than an hour after that second call was made to police, Cindy calls 911 again. And heads up, the beginning of this, it's a little difficult to understand, and it's a little dramatic. 911, what's your emergency? I called a little bit ago, the deputy sheriff, so I found out my granddaughter has been taken. She has been missing for a month. Her mother finally admitted that she's been missing. Okay, what is, what is, what is the address 
you're calling from. Fernandez. Fernandez. Hyphen Gonzalez. 
Anybody else just fuming right now? <laughs> you know what? I would, if Obi went missing, I would be on it. For an hour. <laughs> for an hour. For 30 minutes. I would be all over things. And this is a child. And she's been missing for 31 days. Now, I didn't catch that. Did she say she had talked to Gonzalez that day or something? And that she talked to her daughter or what? Yes. So I'm going to kind of trace the whole call and go over it real quick so that um, because some of it is very difficult Mm -hmm. to understand especially Cindy's part in the beginning there so to back up before the call was made she she made the second call to the police and then she's pacing the house waiting for the officers Mm -hmm. to arrive at her home and Lee the brother Mm -hmm. is in the bedroom with Casey still trying to calmly talk to his sister and figure out what's going on So Cindy is pacing the home from the front of the house to the garage, you know, passing by Casey's room. I mean, just kind of pacing. And as she's pacing, she overhears Casey start to cry and tell her brother that the nanny had taken Kaylee a month prior and had refused to give her daughter back to her. This is when Cindy gets furious, scared. I'm sure she's feeling all the feelings. And she calls the police again. So that's this is the third call. And this time to report her granddaughter, in fact, had been taken. We really want somebody to come find her. The mess you hear when Cindy is kind of yelling, like, this is actually when George gets home from oh work. He's, He's walking, walking in right the door, and she is just this hysterical mess trying to explain to her husband, like, Casey finally admitted Kaylee is missing. She's missing. The nanny took her. So that's kind of what all that screaming is happening. So yeah, you did catch on that she did say that she did talk to the nanny and even spoke to her daughter for a little bit. And then the phone had been disconnected Mm -hmm. uh, since they had last talked. She claims that the nanny's name is Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez, but that she was missing and they didn't know her daughter Kaylee Anthony was. Now, Casey does say... That she was going, you know, later on, she says that she's going, she went through other sources because, you know, you see all the movies. Once you contact the police, the child is killed. Um, So that's kind of her stance that she's taking on this. But like you and I said, 30 minutes of my, I mean, Nolan is three years old, 30 minutes of him missing. I would be on the phone with the police station, like just, oh my gosh, I can't even. Those calls are made on July 15th, 2008, and the investigation begins right away. So the police didn't, the police didn't lag behind at all. They got right on it. They did. So we're actually going to back up. I made note here while I was listening to that. Cindy does say in that call that the last time she saw Kaylee was June 7th. And I don't know why she pulled that date out of her butt during that call. I think she was just really stressed. But in fact, the last day that Kaylee Anthony was seen alive was June 16th. So there's been some, you know, rumors, conspiracies and everything about where she got that date and everything. But in trial and the stories that have been told, you know, Mm -hmm. taken statements, June 16th was actually the last day. Now, so we're going to back up to June 16th. George says that he saw his 
granddaughter, Cindy, had gotten up early that day and she headed to work. She was a nurse. George said that he was sitting in the living room watching TV when he saw Casey and Kaylee emerge from the back bedroom and they started heading out for their day just like they did every day. Kaylee to go to the nanny's house and Casey to go to her job at Universal Studios um, as an event planner. Just as they've done, like like I said, they've done that for the last... So they lived with the parents. They lived with the parents. He remembered the oversized pink sunglasses that Kaylee loved to wear. He got up and walked the girls out to their car, helped buckle Kaylee into her little car seat, and he told her, Jojo loves you. Jojo, see you later. Uh, She called him Jojo. And she blew him kisses, and he went back into the house, and that's the last he saw his granddaughter. Casey's story is similar to her father's. Uh, She dropped Kaylee off at the nanny's when they left her parents' home, and then... Casey headed to work, but when she went back to pick up her daughter, no one was at the apartment. So she called the nanny, but it was saying that the number was out of service. So she decided to drive around to some familiar places that she knew that the nanny took her daughter regularly. The park, some nearby shopping malls, uh, just places where she thought the nanny would have taken Kaylee. She couldn't find her and she didn't want to go home because she didn't have her daughter and she was embarrassed she didn't have her daughter and she didn't want her parents to know and ask a lot of questions. So I think this is probably when she came up with that story that I got a job that's going to be moving me back and forth from Tampa to Jacksonville. I think that's where that story kind of came into play. But this is when she goes and she starts shacking up at her boyfriend Tony's house. So when did she, okay, so this was the 16th. So when did she then Mm -hmm. move to her boyfriend's house? Like the 17th or the 16th? That day. That That night she went and stayed with her boyfriend. She came up with Mm -hmm. that already. She went and stayed with her boyfriend. So now now I'm not saying that she called her parents on the 16th and said, I'm taking this job. I mean, she could have called them a couple days later, whatever. But, um... I think that's where that story comes into play okay. is that time okay. period, why she wasn't coming home. So now it is 31 days later. Police are at the house responding to Cindy's call. And it's around, it's, it's later in the evening, maybe 930 or okay. so at night. I couldn't get an exact time as to when the, the police showed up. So they show up about the stolen car. And now they're walking into this hysterical yeah home of a missing child so detectives are called they arrive and the story is repeated to them they ask questions you know who is this nanny how did you meet her you know just asking all the questions again it's repeated Casey calls the nanny Zanny that's she's Zanny the nanny and her name is Zanida Fernandez Gonzalez they ask for the phone number but Casey doesn't have it she had left her cell phone in her locker at work And they're like, okay, well, can you come with us and show us where the nanny lives? Sure, let's go. So it's late and Casey gets in the police vehicle and they go to the apartment complex and she points up to the apartment and she says, that's Zanny's apartment right there. So police go up and they knock on the door and there's no answer. One of the detectives looks into the window and the apartment is absolutely empty. And there's no one living in it. No, it's empty. So... They go back to the vehicle with Casey. They chat a little bit more, drive around a little bit more. They talk about like, did you tell anybody else about the disappearance? You know, you didn't tell your parents, but did you tell a friend or Mm -hmm. your boyfriend? And she says, yes, she had told two coworkers. But again, she doesn't have their cell phone numbers because she doesn't have her cell phone with her. So they can't call these people. Plus, it's really late at night. I mean, at daybreak, the police drop Casey off at her parents' home. 
So while Casey goes home and gets some sleep, detectives start investigating. They're looking into the suspect, a nanny, middle-aged, half-black, half-Puerto Rican woman. They also start doing research into Casey. They give Casey a call later that day. And so that original call to police from Cindy is on the 15th. This is now the 16th. I mean, we're making moves. And they tell her, we're going to come pick you up and we're going to take you to Universal Studios where you work and we're going to go retrieve your cell phone and, you know, possibly, hopefully talk to your coworkers and get, you know, they just want a a timeline. They want some facts to match up with this story. So they arrive at Universal Studios and even though she didn't have her badge on her, she had forgotten it at home, uh, they let her in. I mean, she has all these detectives (laughs) with her. They get into the building where they go through more security and the officer doesn't recognize her and asks, you know, what's the name of your supervisor? She tells him and gives the supervisor's extension. The extension doesn't work, but the security guy's like, well, shoot, I'm newer here. Plus, again, Casey is with all these detectives. So they're all allowed back. Casey walks in the back, turns down a hall, goes up the elevator. The whole time she's waving at people like, hey, how are you? They turn down another hallway and it's a dead end. She doesn't work there. Casey turns around and looks at the police officers and says, I don't work here. Oh, my gosh. The police are like, no crap, you don't work here. <laughs> they had figured that out earlier in the day. They were just seeing how far this chick would go. Oh, they knew it and the whole time. They knew it. And, you know, that just kind of shows you Casey's not going to start telling the truth until she's literally backed into a dead end, until she's literally backed into a corner. She did used to work there two years ago, but she hadn't worked there since. And those co-workers she named, they were all made up. Oh, my gosh. They had, did she even have a phone? I'm sure she did. But, Mom, th- that, that was neither here or there. She's just a liar. Jeez. Uh They had also found out by going back to the apartment complex that morning and talking to the apartment manager. No one has lived there. Nobody by the name of Zenaida had ever lived in that apartment or the apartment complex ever. Uh, That apartment in itself had been vacant for over three months. Oh my gosh. So let's think about this for a minute. I mean, she's been getting up, getting her and her baby dressed every day for two years and heading who knows where. Where? She's telling people she's going to work and the baby's going to the nanny, but where the hell, excuse my language, but where the hell is she going? Yeah. What the hell is she doing? And so was the little girl saying anything about anything? I mean, Nolan would, he would say what he was doing that day. I know. That's where, uh, mom, I don't know. That's where the story gets really complicated to me because maybe that's why things started to happen because Kaylee would start was starting to talk talk more so Kaylee was not quite three she turned three in August okay okay that was kind of the cutoff point for Cindy of like you guys have been gone for so long I'm gonna see my granddaughter for her birthday like she they lived with her like they and I'll go into that relationship more a little bit here in a second but so they're at Universal Studios she's backed into a corner she admits she doesn't work there and right away the detective's pull her into a conference room there in the building and they start interrogating her. They're like, just come on, tell us the truth. All you're doing is lying. We're sick of it. Like, don't, do you think we're stupid? Like, do you even want to find your daughter? And she is just absolutely adamant that her daughter was taken 
by the nanny, Zenaida. Oh, my she gosh. She is adamant on that story. There were so many inconsistencies. There was no sense of urgency, no sense of concern. So to try to shift the dynamic, I mean, she just seemed like she thought she was in control with all mm-hmm. these freaking lies. They arrest Casey Anthony for child neglect, as well as making false official statements and obstructing an investigation right there on the spot. Good. Now, Florida has the Sunshine Law. I think we discussed this before on another episode, but everything calls to 911, calls from prisoners, calls made from prison. It's all recorded and filmed. And then basically it's made public, public lickety split. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like right away, it is public knowledge. So Casey gets to jail and gets her one call and she decides to call her parents. It was a longer call. I found it recorded from the trial, again, posted by WESH2 News. Like I said, it's a longer call. So I'm just going to play you guys the beginning of the call. And I do warn that there is some cussing. Now, there's been a little cussing going on in my mind, so. Hello? Hello, this is a free call from Casey. I am late from the Orange County Correctional Center for a rate quote press seven. To accept this free call, press zero. To obtain a customer, this call is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using Global Telling. Casey? Mom. Hey, sweetie. Well, I just saw your nice little cameo on TV. Which one? What do you mean, which one? Which one? I did four different ones, and I don't know. I haven't seen them all. I've only seen one or two so far. You don't know what my involvement is and stuff? Casey. Mom. What? No. I don't know what your involvement is, sweetheart. You can, you're not telling me where she's at. Because I don't fucking know where she's at. Are you kidding me? Casey, don't waste your call. No. Scream and holler at waste me. my call sitting in, oh, the, the jail? Whose fault is you sitting in the jail? You're blaming me that you're sitting in the jail? Not Blame my yourself fault. for telling lies. You mean it's not your fault? What do you mean it's not your fault, sweetheart? If you'd have told them the truth and not lied about everything, they wouldn't. Do me a favor, just tell me what Tony's number is. I don't want to talk to you right now. Forget it. I don't have his number. Um, we'll get it from Lee because I know Lee's at the house. I saw Mallory's car was out front. It was just on the news. They were just live outside the house. I know they were. Well? Well, can you get Tony's number for me so I can call him? It's not her fault that she is in jail. She is a total B. I I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh. And the way she she's not taking responsibility for anything. I told myself when I was writing up this episode that I was going to leave my feelings out of it. It's kind of hard. Just re <laughs> Re-listening to these calls, you you can't but help make your own opinions and just, I'm, I get just, I'm getting even more pissed off listening to them again. So who is it that Woo! she wanted to talk to? Tony? Who's that? Her boyfriend. She doesn't know his number? She doesn't have her phone, mom. She's in prison. She has nothing on him. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't know people's phone numbers without my cell phone. Okay. Uh, That's the younger generation time. for you. Yeah, well, (laughs) I don't remember everybody's phone numbers. (sighs) So basically, to sum up the entire call, uh, Cindy hands the phone off to Lee, Casey's brother, Mm -hmm. who basically he hands it off to his girlfriend. Each one is just like 
I'm not dealing with her. I don't understand why like she's in jail. She's blaming us. Like, I don't understand if she would just freaking come out and tell us what the heck is going on. It's sad because she's like, she's telling, talking to her brother and she's like, you know, give me Tony's phone number. But in the same breath, she's like, and you know what? Don't come to my bail hearing. (laughs) And he's like, hold on in the same breath you're going to tell me this I'm not I'm not wasting my time on you like this is ridiculous so he hands the phone off to somebody and I'm assuming the person he hands the phone off to is his girlfriend poor girl and (laughs) she gets sucked into this well supposedly she and Casey were fairly close and so they think that she can kind of talk to her Mm -hmm. in like a friendly again they're all just trying to take a different take on this (laughs) You know, try to get anything they can out of Casey. And it's actually really sad because she's begging. This girl on the phone with Casey is basically begging. What happened to Kaylee? If anything happened to that baby, I would die. And she's just like crying. And and Casey answers her, quote, oh, my God. Calling you guys was a waste, a huge waste. It is all about her. She just wants her boyfriend's number. So the conversation, this this call keeps going on. And again, I think it's Lee's girlfriend. But she asks Casey, like, why is everyone saying that you're lying? Casey says, because no one's listening to a word I say. <laughs> the media is misconstruing everything. Detectives told them absolute bullshit. They're twisting stuff. You know, it's everybody else's oh, fault. Yeah. And the girl on the phone with Casey's like, they're saying the person you say took Kaylee doesn't exist. And Casey just, again, she just gets really upset. And she's like, yeah, because they're not listening to me. They looked in the Florida database. She's not from Florida. Yeah, she's from some made up land in Casey's head. (laughs) Anyway, she's like, if they would actually listen to anything I've actually said to them, they would have had their lead and tracked her down. So, yeah, it's all over the media. Orlando is living, breathing this case day in, day out. But police had to turn to the media. They had to try to get tips or anything from people because they're not getting a straight story from Casey. The child's mother. Right. The family has no idea what's going on. So, yeah, the police are going to turn to the media to try to get anything. And like the woman on the phone with Casey stated, they weren't sure that Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez even existed. Police had tracked down a Zenaida Gonzalez. They had called her in. They had questioned this poor woman, (laughs) but she didn't. She didn't know Casey had never met Kaylee and never by any means babysat her. Oh, my gosh. That poor lady. So as you can see, the relationship between Casey and her parents in particular, seems a little off, maybe tense. From the outside, it seemed all well. George used to be in law enforcement. Mm. Cindy was a nurse. Their daughter got pregnant at 19. They helped raise their granddaughter. I mean, they loved the crap out of that little baby. It was more like Kaylee was their daughter more than Casey's. Mm -hmm. They really cared for her. They provided a home for them. And Kaylee loved her JoJo and Grammy. This isn't saying that Casey was a bad mom by any means. Honestly, from what friends said, Casey was a very attentive mother with Kaylee. Oh. From what all sources said, she was a good mom. Interesting. She wasn't neglectful. Oh. Yeah. But as you look deeper into the relationships of Casey and her parents, you start to see the strain. Casey was a liar. I think we've established that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That was not new 
to just this case, she lied to her parents that she was graduating high school, and she wasn't. By the time the parents found out that Casey was not, in fact, graduating, it was too late to cancel the big party that Cindy had put together. Oh, my gosh. So they all still went through with the graduation, still had this big party. So they, like, enabled her lies. Yeah, it sounds like it, yeah. I think Cindy did more so than George. I think George was starting to really get sick of the lies and maybe started feeling taken advantage of. I mean, he paid for her car. They cared for her daughter. And, you know, Casey was stealing money from them, forging checks. She couldn't even afford filling her car up with gas. I guess at one point she and her boyfriend broke into the Anthony shed and stole gas cans that you used to fill up like a lawnmower. lawnmower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was just a lot going on behind the scenes. I found many lies that Casey told in her past in my research. I mean, for a while she claimed the father of Kaylee was some ex-boyfriend of hers. Neither George nor Cindy had ever met him until in the hospital the day Kaylee was born. He was older, kind of scruffy, kind of yucky from how George described him. But later, paternity showed he was not the father. Sound like Maury there. (laughs) You are not the father. (laughs) Then later, she claimed that the father was a guy named Eric Baker. But then a few months later, she calls her mom crying, claiming that Eric had died in a tragic car accident. Oh, my gosh, this girl. Again, they never met him and there was no confirmed paternity. Really, they don't know to this day who Kaylee's father was. She even said that a friend of hers, Jeffrey Hopkins, who was in fact a friend of hers from middle school, but she had this long, elaborate story about how Jeffrey used to date Zenaida, the nanny. That's how she met Zenaida. Oh. And that Jeffrey was made rich recently by this huge trust fund. He had a son named Zachary. His wife had died in a terrible accident. And I guess they bonded over their the parents of their children dying in accidents. And they were actually planning on moving in together with their two children. And Zachary went to the nannies with Kaylee. And they weren't a couple or anything. They were just friends. But that was like this huge story she had and told her parents for a long time. At the trial, poor Jeffrey is called to the stand. And he had never lost a wife in an accident. He never had a son named Zachary that he knew of. (laughs) Never dated a woman named Zenaida, let alone introduce Casey to one. It was just all this elaborate lie. I mean, it's just lie upon lie upon lie. One of the fake co-workers that she had mentioned, one of her imaginary friends, should I say, her name was Juliette Lewis. Casey had this whole story on her, too. She was from a wealthy family from the East Coast. At one point in time, Casey and her mother, Cindy, went to help this Juliette Lewis with some kind of fundraiser. This is according to ABC News, but they both went to help Juliet with this fundraiser, waited for an hour and a half, but Juliet never showed. Oh my gosh, Casey dragged her mom into that? Again, I guess just, I, I, I don't even know what the point is, I guess, no. to prove this Juliet Lewis was a real person. Like, I, I just... Her lies are just outlandish. And her parents, and that just shows too how Cindy just goes along with it all the time, just... 
believes it all all the time. But back to the relationship with her parents, where I really saw into their relationship was a clip that was on ID Discovery's show, Casey Anthony, an American Murder Mystery. It's a three-part series from 2017. You can watch it on Hulu. It's very well done. They have great interviews with detectives that were on the case. It's, it's very good. But on the first episode, they share some footage of a visit of George and Cindy to Casey while she's in prison. George is caring. He calls his daughter gorgeous, tells her he wishes he could give her a big hug and take all her pain away. Cindy gets the phone and she's like, quote, we aren't doing too well out here, unquote. And then she goes on to say, you know, someone just said that Kaylee is dead. Uh. Casey's response, quote, surprise, surprise. What? Unquote. Cindy went on to say, we need to have something to go on. Casey responded, quote, I don't have anything for you, mom. I've been here a month today. Do you understand how I feel? Oh, my unquote. gosh. Oh, I just can't stand Casey starts raging. I mean, she's like pulling at her hair. She's just like, no one's letting me speak. My entire life has been taken from me. Everything has been taken from me. She's just like freaking out. And you see a glimpse of her parents and her relationship in this, just this minute clip and just how they are trying to calm her down. And they just tiptoe around her. She's like this volcano ready to erupt at any minute. And they just tiptoe. They don't want to make it erupt. Like it's just, it's, it's pathetic. Mm. I mean, they obviously see that something is not right with their daughter. And they had to have seen that early on way before yeah. all this. And they're just, they just love her so much and they refuse to admit it. And I don't know. That's just, it's really sad. Like, I love my kids so, so, so much. And it would be really, really hard to admit that something was wrong. But I, I don't know. You'd also want to get them the help that they needed. If you and love your child that much, you do get the help that they need. You don't just let that behavior continue because it's going to hurt your child. Or hurt your child's child. Well. Ugh. So back to the investigation. From Casey's first call in jail, she is obsessed with obviously getting her boyfriend Tony's phone number. So police hear this phone call between her and her parents and how she's so obsessed with Tony. So they're, of course, like, well, we need to go track this guy down. They go and they interview Tony and his roommate, Clint. The two are shocked that Casey had been living with them for basically the last month and never said anything about Kaylee. Casey used to always bring Kaylee around when the two first started dating. But over time, she was at the nannies or at the grandparents. There was always an excuse. Clint was interviewed. Again, he's the roommate okay. of Tony. He was interviewed on that show I just mentioned, An American Murder Mystery, and he talked fondly of Casey and Kaylee. He said that she seemed like a good mom and Kaylee was a really good kid, really smart and just super sweet and goofy. And she liked to make them all laugh. And they loved having her around. And, and Tony was absolutely shocked by all of this. Casey never mentioned anything to him about her daughter missing. So back up to that first day, June 16th, right. when she couldn't find Kaylee at the nanny's. She went to her boyfriend's house and Casey and Tony are seen on security footage that night at a local blockbuster, arm in arm, getting a movie, giggling. They're having a grand old date night. 
She's not looking for her baby. And when her when the nanny she can't get in touch with the nanny who has her kid, but she's gonna go to Blockbuster and get a movie. Poor Tony, he didn't have a clue. He doesn't have a clue. I'm sure he was told, you know, oh, she's with Zanny or who she's. Who knows with... what he's been told? Because she's all over the board. Jeez. Yep. It's around this time that detectives are made aware of the three calls that Cindy had made that I played for you. One in particular was standing out. The third call, quote, it smells like there was a dead body in the damned car, unquote. That's what Cindy said in that third phone call. She did? She did. Immediately, they go to the garage to check out this car. And sure enough, as soon as they walk into the garage, the foul smell of decomp fills their nostrils. There was no question in their minds there had been a dead body in that car. A cadaver dog was brought in. It circled the car and basically instantly alerted at the trunk area. There is a small stained area on the trunk's liner. They cut a piece of that to be sent for testing. They also find human hairs that they send off for testing as well. Cindy is brought in for questioning at this point, and they bring up the car. They bring up the smell. They bring up the quote that she said in the third call, Mm -hmm. and this time her story totally changes. She says in the back of the car were trash bags and the smell that they were actually smelling was a pizza. It had been covered in maggots and it had given off this foul smell after sitting out in the trunk in the hot Florida sun. Police are like, you know, I'm sorry, a dead body and a rotten pizza do Two not different smell things. the same. Maggots are not right. I mean. Plus, excuse me, but we had our cadaver dog out there. And this is where... You know, like I said, I watched every documentary I could and different resources said so many different things. But, you know, George was in law enforcement and he was he was pretty damn sure that that smelled like decomp. You know, they talked about it even, but there was no evidence. They're like, where's Kaylee? I mean, I can just again, they're probably in total denial of their daughter. So it's just. But then other resources said that, you know, George really stayed out of the investigation because he was in law enforcement and he had so much feelings towards it. He stayed out of it. But George did call the police and ask to talk to the detectives on his own. They didn't call him in. He called them. And I think being a prior law enforcement officer has a lot to do with that. But, you know, he told them that he had bad vibes when he got into that car. And then that's basically it. He just decides to kind of cut the conversation short. He doesn't know anything and he leaves. Now, this is just my interpretation of their meeting with George, but You know, he asked for the meeting. I think he initially went in wanting to share his true feelings on his daughter, Mm -hmm. that something was off. And in the end, his heart and his loyalty to his family, maybe that won out and he decided against sharing his thoughts. But it's just, it's interesting that he called to go in himself and then said that one thing about the car and that was it. And that's really too bad because Casey really screws her father over later on. I'll get to that in the trial. But so Casey gets a high bond set to $500,000 in her hearing. And within a day or so, she stops talking and cooperating with police. She hired a defense attorney. She got the name from another inmate in prison, Jose Baez. Now, some sources claim he was some big shot attorney. But from what I gathered, he was not. That And from what the documentary said on Hulu, he really wasn't a big shot at all. He was green. He had never done a murder case before. He had never done a case like this before, ever. How can she afford him? Nothing even similar to Casey's. If she is a big shot lawyer, she couldn't have afforded him. 
I don't I don't think he was a big shot lawyer. Obviously, at all. no. Yeah. But he and I'll talk about that relationship later, but he had advised Casey to shut her mouth and stop talking. So like I mentioned in the beginning, I remember the media circus and this is where it really got bad was when Casey got bail and was put on house arrest. People went crazy. And I think you can probably remember the people picketing at the family home. There was you know, people ringing their doorbell and yelling at them, yelling Bible verses into their homes. You know, just the picketing signs like, where is Kaylee? There was vicious attacks on the family. The parents were getting in like fist fights with people coming oh, onto their yard. I mean, it was terrible. And it was all made even worse when in December that year, a meter reader, a man who worked for the city, was out working. So in kind words, he walked into the woods to relieve himself, and he made a horrible discovery. He called 911 and reported that he had found a human skull. Police were dispatched right away. Sure enough, it was a skull of a small child. Uh. Bones were scattered throughout the woods, and so they had all been in this bag that was within a trash bag. And I'm sure I think animals probably had gotten to it. That's why the bones were scattered. Within the bag that was in the trash bag, they found a little child's remains wrapped in a Winnie the Pooh blanket. The remains would later, in fact, be identified as Kaylee Anthony. Unfortunately, the remains were so decomposed they could not determine the cause of death. Now, what was interesting in the discovery of these items was the location in the woods. So close to the Anthony's home, less than half a mile away. Oh, my gosh. Now, in that phone call, you heard, you know, Casey getting upset because her mom had been on the news and the Cindy's even saying like, which one did you see? I've, you know, I've done a lot of interviews. I mean, can you blame her? Cindy and George are doing anything they can to find their granddaughter. They think she's really out there. They're believing their daughter and that she was taken by the nanny. So they're getting her picture out there everywhere they can. And so they had search parties in the area looking, looking, looking. I mean, it's just crazy that, They're looking all over the Orlando area and less than a half mile from the Anthony home is where the body was discovered. The thing that gets me eh, is terrible, but there was duct tape found on Kaylee's skull. Not one piece, but three. They were taped across the jaw and the mandible. So basically across the mouth and the nose of the poor baby Kaylee Anthony. Oh, jeez. Detectives get a warrant to search the Anthony home where they link objects found with the body to their home. Kaylee's room was decorated in Winnie the Pooh and a blanket was recorded as missing. The bag that the baby's body was found in was actually a laundry bag, one that was sold as a set of two. The other was found in the Anthony home. Mm -hmm. The duct tape was actually a unique brand that was made in Ohio where the Anthony's used to live. And in fact, the pieces matched the roll found at the Anthony residence. Cadaver dogs were called out as well to the Anthony home, and they alerted in the backyard at a couple different locations. Inevitably, Casey is sent back to jail. Because remember, she was yes, out on bond. Yes. Send her back to jail, and she stays in prison for over two and a half years awaiting her trial. I got a lot of my information on the trial from watching bits and pieces of it on the YouTube on the YouTube, (laughs) on YouTube, like I mentioned before, and I will list all those resources. But most of it came from the podcast, True Crime Garage. They did a four-parter on the case. So if you want to really dive into it and hear more, I 
highly recommend their episodes. It was episodes 101 through 104. They really go in depth. It's very interesting. And the one host, he goes by the name The Captain. He was cracking me up because, again, he did not keep his feelings on Casey Anthony to himself. (laughs) He hates her. And I mean, he was not afraid to comment as such. He kept referring to her as the troll. Oh, nice. It's not very nice, but it was very funny. Okay. Apropos, it sounds to me. (laughs) People were going crazy to be in this courtroom, Mom. They slept outside the courthouse the night before. Uh I mean, because there's only 50 seats to fill. And they slept. People were going insane over this case. Okay, so the prosecution has a lot of evidence. I've covered a lot of that already. They have all the lying that she did back and forth to lead them on all these excursions. They have all the physical evidence and signs of decomp in the truck, the duct tape. I mean, why on earth should a baby ever have duct tape on their nose and mouth? They shouldn't. They have the laundry bag. Some other evidence I didn't cover, but they also searched the family's computer's usage. And if that ever happened on my computer, I would be put in jail right away with all the research. <laughs> you and me we've both. Done. <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was like, I would be absolutely screwed. Because of the time stamp, they were only left to assume it was Casey because the parents would have been at work. But there was a search for how to make chloroform. Really? Yeah. They also have the odd evidence. I don't know if this is evidence, but the odd actions of Casey during those 31 days that her daughter was quote unquote missing. Mm -hmm. But now we know that she was dead. They have the blockbuster footage I mentioned. Footage of her out partying. I'm sure y'all remember those photos hitting the stands. She's in that little blue dress. She had gone into a hot body contest. And this is like weeks after her daughter is dead. She also got a tattoo. During those 31 days, her baby is, again, quote unquote, missing. That said, Bella Vito, which is Italian for beautiful life, is bizarre. And no matter our opinions or how oddball all of this is, the evidence is circumstantial, to say the least. The prosecution needs to prove that Casey Anthony is guilty in first degree murder. That's what they chose to charge her for. First degree murder. They're not charging her for being a neglectful mom. They're not charging her for being a liar. They're not trying to charge her for being a sociopath because clearly she is. They need to charge her for first degree murder. Yeah. Yeah. And Jose Baez, Casey's defense attorney, he has a different story to tell in court. Yes, Casey lied about the nanny and working at Universal Studios. She lied about it all. But she was taught to lie at an early age. Home life was bad for Casey. And that all started when she was eight years old. And George, her father, started sneaking into her room at night to touch her inappropriately. In a later interview years later that I watched by Crime Daily, an interview between George and Cindy with Chris Hansen, George says that when he heard that, he wanted to jump that little fence separating Uh the the crowd and Jose Baez. He was furious. When he was called to the stand later, he absolutely, of course, denied all of this. This is all just such a lie. Jose Baez didn't stop there, though, at attacking and blaming George Anthony. While on the stand, America saw tough George break down when Jose Baez attacked him for trying to commit suicide, which was a fact. After they had found Kaylee's body, George could not handle things. He drove off to a shady motel, drank a lot, wrote a long letter to his wife, and took a lot of pills. If it wasn't for the fact that he had a sandwich beforehand, he would have succeeded in his suicide. 
but the letter was filled with love for his wife, praising her for all she had done for him and their family, as well as her strength and love for Casey through all of this. But he was so confused by all of it, angered at his daughter, and he wanted to be with Kaylee. He needed to be with Kaylee. Jose Baez used this terrible point in George's life as leverage, trying to use it to show that he, in fact, was guilty and had a big part in his granddaughter's disappearance. Oh, jeez. Obviously, he was so riddled with guilt over his sexual abuse and what he did. I mean, it's sick, really. But yeah, that was Jose Baez's whole angle, that the family was filled with secrets, one being that George molested Casey for years, and the biggest one being that on June 16th, George had discovered Kaylee's body drowned in the family's pool. I knew the pool came in, but I'd forgotten how. Yeah, okay. Yep. George blamed Casey. Why weren't you watching your daughter? Your mother is never going to forgive you for this. Jose Baez's story was that it was all an accident. Kaylee had drowned, and then George put her in the plastic bag, took her to the woods, and quote-unquote took care of it. And I guess there was a phone call made from George to Casey that day that was like a one-minute call. And, you know, some conspiracy was that George was making the call to basically say, like, it's done. I took care of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but why, I'm sorry, why would the baby have tape around her mouth and nose if she drowned that's, in the pool? That's exactly my question. That does not explain the smell of decomp in the trunk of Casey's car or the fact that there was duct tape on the baby's mouth. But that was the defense's story. Cindy Anthony was brought up to the stand on this issue and denied it all as well, but also tried to cover her daughter's ass. Excuse my language. But Cindy claimed that she was the one who searched chloroform. She'd actually meant to search chlorophyll to see if it was poisonous to her dog who had recently eaten one of her cactus plants. Even on the stand, Cindy was like, yeah, I looked up chloroform. Oh, whoops. I mean chlorophyll. They were like, you were at work. And she was like, oh, no, no, no. I was the one who looked that up. Uh. The boyfriend was brought in, Tony Lazaro, again, trying to show Casey's character and that she just went to Blockbuster, had a date night, a normal night, while her daughter potentially lay dead in her trunk. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it all adds up, right? Plus, the newbie attorney, Jose Baez, Casey Anthony was the most hated mother in America. But as you all know, that's not how the jury saw it. After 33 days of testimony, there was a little over 10 hours of jury deliberation when it was announced that Casey Anthony was found not guilty for all charges relating to Kaylee. She was found guilty for lying to police, but basically because she had already been in prison awaiting the trial, she served another 10 days in jail and then she was sent home. Well, not home exactly. Her parents, George especially, wanted nothing nothing to do with her, but she was released. People went crazy. They wanted the jury's heads on spikes. This should have been an open and shut case. But in the end, the jury saw no concrete facts that Casey had been the one to kill Kaylee. Yes, Kaylee was dead, but there was no proof it was Casey. There was no proof of how the little girl died. No hard evidence pointing to Casey. So with that doubt, Casey had to not be guilty. Mm. Prosecution was charging Casey for first-degree murder. Now, this is the most serious of all homicide charges. First-degree murder meant there was malice and a plan in place. premeditated, right. There was no proof of that here. There was no proof of a plan, no proof that Casey did this. Plus, it was first-degree murder with the death penalty. 
So if they have any doubt, which they all clearly did, Casey's life was going to be put to death on that. And that just, that that wasn't right. It sucks because with all her lies, we all kind of dislike her. I'm not going to use the word hate, but we really dislike her. And you just don't know what to believe. But a drowning accident or not, she hit it. Yeah. She had something to do with it. But that's not what she was being charged for. I think they charged her incorrectly with first degree murder. I think they went too strong. Oh. Casey went into hiding, basically. That Zenaida Gonzalez that was brought in for questioning, she sued Casey, as well as a search and rescue team from the area that her parents had brought in. They sued Casey as well because, I mean, they're searching for a missing person, but someone obviously knew where she was the whole time, and unfortunately, she was dead. So Casey filed bankruptcy, and all those charges were dropped. She was really low on money, and you had mentioned before, how does she pay for Jose Baez? Uh, Let's just say... um, Physically? Yeah. (laughs) There was a PI that was working for the defense at the time of the trial. When the PI came forward later, he claimed that Casey was paying Jose Baez in sexual favors. There was a time when the PI saw Casey running out of Jose's office naked, smiling, laughing. It was not a very appropriate relationship that even at one time she refused to do an interview or something, have pictures. I don't remember what it was for. And Jose Baez's response was, "Okay, well, now you owe me three (gasps) blowjobs. Oh, geez. Over time, many theories have come up. And actually, I do agree with George's theory, the father. In fact, he says that it seems that he believes Kaylee was drugged, then suffocated with the duct tape. Clint, the roommate of the boyfriend, mm-hmm. he never second guessed it. He kind of always assumed that when the that when Casey said that Kaylee was with Zanny, the nanny. Uh, do you know what the street name for Xanax is? Oh, Oh, my God. Zanny. Right. Had she been drugging her maybe even before that? Because if she's calling it the nanny. How did she have a life? You know, was she just drugging her every day so she could go on and oh, I, I just don't know, Mom. she was. That makes total sense now. And that's why the little girl wasn't talking. She was sleeping through most of the day. She had been drugged. Oh. That's kind of what a lot of people assumed. George and Cindy were interviewed, like I said, by Chris Hansen on Crime Daily, and the couple sit there holding hands, standing by one another, but with two very different views on their daughter. George wants nothing, I mean nothing, to do with his daughter. To him, she died the day Kaylee died. Cindy, on the other hand, now she's not as weak as she was before, where she changed her story to pizza and said that she's the one who searched for chloroform. Oh, I mean chlorophyll. But she's very saddened by the alternative reality that her daughter seems to live in. She's super upset with how her daughter can never and has never taken any responsibility for anything. Chris Hansen asked George, is she a killer? George sits in silence and Cindy looks at him to kind of like coax him. Do you think she intentionally killed Kaylee? And George says, I don't think she intentionally wanted to, but she should be in jail because Kaylee is not here. The couple still live in their home in Orlando. They refuse to leave the memories of their beloved Kaylee behind. I I mean, if you thought that they were guilty, doesn't that make you kind of think twice? If you thought that George did have something to do with it, wouldn't you think he'd want out of that home? I would never think that George had anything to do with it at all. Nothing. Cindy is haunted by the memories of her sweet granddaughter grabbing her cheeks and waking her up in the early mornings to play, and George is actually haunted by his granddaughter. He sees her in the hallways of their home, and she gives him this sense of peace in her spirit. 
and they both claim that their grandson, Lee's son, has saved both of their lives, bringing the love of a child back into their home. Casey, last I saw, was a photographer. She has done a few interviews since all of this, talking about how actually she would consider being a mother again, (laughs) and how she sleeps good at night because she is okay with herself. (sighs) Can anybody say sociopath? (laughs) There was word that she was going to do a reality TV show with O.J. Simpson. Oh, perfect match. (laughs) Chatting and showing life after being acquitted when America thinks you're guilty. And she was working on a movie that she wrote. Of course. Uh, Actually, pretty dirty. It was pretty raunchy. A lot of sex. It showed the conception of Kaylee, which I find really interesting since nobody knows who the father is, uh, to the death of Kaylee and Casey's life through it all. Apparently, the movie was shut down due to COVID. I guess that's one good thing that came from COVID. Right. Cindy and George both said that if either of those come to light, they will be filing a wrongful death lawsuit against her. They thought that that would be disgusting, that she should ever sell her story for money. They would take initiative and file a civil lawsuit against her for sure. But to this day, Casey refuses to take any blame. She's a true sociopath through and through in the way that she like compartmentalizes it all and just Uh moves on. Uh Again, even claiming that she's not against having another child. Laws have changed in Florida because of this case. Unfortunately for Kaylee's case too late. But it is called Kaylee's Law. Anyone guilty of neglect who does not report their child missing faces felony charges and a conviction up to two decades. Oh, wow. So, yes, guys, this is a long episode, but I couldn't break it up into two parts and I couldn't cut out things that I thought were really interesting. Wow. I, I, I'm it's, happy you did this because I didn't know I didn't know the inside either. I mean, I, I just saw the outside stuff, the picketing and the dancing and uh, but I and the pool. I, I just remember the pool. But the other sure. stuff was just see, it's like she had a good background. You know, her parents were good parents. It, it's so is a sociopath both nature and nurture. I mean, can a, a person be born as a sociopath? I guess so. I I really don't know. I think George was, I mean, we don't know what happened behind closed doors. I think George was pretty strict with his daughter and she didn't like that and she rebelled mm. really young. I think Cindy was, let her daughter kind of do whatever the heck she wanted. Well, she probably was making up for the strictness. So she was sure. overcompensating. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that dynamic is bad by any means, but that also I don't think that creates a sociopath either. No. From what I understand, Lee turned out fine. Mm-hmm. So again, we just don't know what to do as parents, right or wrong. No. But I think that there were definite signs of something wrong with Casey leading up to this. And again, if they wouldn't have charged her with first degree, I think she would be sitting in jail or I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what plays out because she's very adamant that her story and her movie gets out there. Uh, so I'd be in- interested to see if George and Cindy do follow through and, uh-huh. you know, reopen this a little so bit. So does she live in Florida? No, I think she's, I, I don't, I think she's still kind of hiding where exactly she lives. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. She's she a probably still has a death threat on her. Yeah, and I think it was the Crime Daily interview they mentioned that, you know, she had mentioned that she was not against being a mother again. And George's reaction was like, with who? Like somebody probably maybe from another country. And you're like, yeah, like with who? I I, I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's definitely, she is going to go to her grave with that secret, I think. And I just, I just get stuck on that duct tape. That's, 
if if there was an accidental drowning, if she was drugging her with Xanax uh, or, you know, anything, she's drugging her with anything and maybe she overdosed her. Uh-huh. Why was there duct tape on that baby's mouth? I don't know. Yeah. That's where my heart just absolutely sinks thinking about it every single time. So, yes, we all know the name Casey Anthony, but that is the story. Uh-huh. <sighs> How awful. So I told mom that this was going to be a longer episode, which clearly it is. But I did tell her we still need to end on a paranormal, something light, hopefully funny. Enlighten something. I don't know how funny it is, but uh, (laughs) it's kind of hard to find a funny, a funny thing. But uh, yes, because we actually did have a few listeners who, when we did the uh, two part said, um, that was really great, but we kind of would like to have the paranormal at the end so we need that lightheartedness to end (laughs) our killer hangover with I wanted to do it on the Breakers Hotel because I had a story from there a funny story but the Breakers Hotel even though it is a very old historical hotel has absolutely no hauntings what I was so bummed about that no hauntings at all at all I was like, how can that even that's be? That's interesting. But so I skipped the whole. Maybe that's maybe that's one of those hotels that doesn't want it out that their place is haunted. Maybe, but not, nowhere. And sometimes you can catch something somewhere. Sure, sure. I googled everywhere. I used the Google. <laughs> you used the Google. Believe me, I really wanted to do the breakers, but nope. You used the Google, and I used, used the, YouTube. the YouTube. Yep. <laughs> Golly, this this story sounded really interesting to me, but then it got really confusing. So I hope I don't confuse you. If I do, stop me and I'll explain. So (laughs) I am going to do a little thing on the Seven Sisters Inn, and that is in Ocala, Florida. So the Seven Sisters Inn are blue and purple pink, like it's a purple pink color. They're Victorian manors in the historical part of Ocala, Florida. So the inn is like multiple houses? Two houses. Uh-huh. Okay. So the Blue Manor was built in 1890 by Joseph and Linda Lancaster. And in 1895, the house became the, I'm sorry, I want to say it right, Rainau. Yep. Rainau uh, House. When prominent Ocala businessman Charles Rainau and his wife Emma moved into the house. They were from Germany. You should should have been able to pronounce those very well, Mom. Uh, I did the first time, and then I thought, no. Uh, they lived in the house until <laughs> their deaths. Charles died on May 18, 1925, and Emma died 17 years later on May 7, 1942. Oh. It's weird that they both died in May, I thought, even 17 years apart. Hmm. So, oh, the adjacent Scott house... So that's the purple pink house was built in 1888. So it's a little older. Okay. By the prominent Scott family. There are several rooms in the house, but seven of them are named for each of the Scott sisters and are individually furnished in that sister's favorite colors. And so I believe that's where the name Seven Sisters Inn comes from. They had seven girls. <laughs> seven girls. Oh, Yeah, but man. they were very wealthy, prominent family, so. But still, seven that's daughters, what... can you imagine? <laughs> seven daughters. It makes me think of yes. seven brides for seven <laughs> brothers. Seven brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so owners came and went from the, for the next 50 years. Five, zero, 50. In 1989, Bonnie Moorhart and Ken Ogden 
they were married, but they kept their individual names, bought the property, which consisted of the two Victorian houses. The owners were international cargo pilots who picked up antiques and artifacts from around the world. Wow. Including Madrid, Casablanca, Beijing, Paris, and Cairo. That's awesome. The couple awesome. used these to add to the restoration of the Rhinau House, keeping the Victorian theme but embellishing the suites with finds from these far-off countries. That's so cool. The suites each have an entryway that leads into a fantastical room. For example, one has the 400-year-old doors from a Bali temple, which lead into a room which looks just like the inside of an Egyptian pyramid. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, sarcophagus and all. Oh, wow. It, it, it's just, and each room is different. Unfortunately, in 2009, the couple ended up in a contract that went horribly wrong when they tried to sell the property. So they had basically sold it to this person, but then the person backed out and then all the money was lost. And so... The asking price was $1.3 million, which included all the future bookings, two homes on the National Registry of Historic Places, and everything in them. Oh, wow. That's kind so, of a steal. Yeah. <laughs> all those artifacts, everything in them was sold with the property. A local paranormal group even got into the mix to save the property from foreclosure by circulating a petition to extend the date but to no avail. The property was foreclosed to the First Coast Community Bank. The night of the foreclosure, there was actually a candlelight vigil held in front of the Seven <laughs> Sisters Inn. Oh. People were really, because it, it was bringing in a lot of tourism, and it was just, you know, people were very passionate about this property. Well, these are historical homes, too, and that's always kind of sad to see. You never you know what's going to happen. Gonna take it over. I mean, yeah. uh, no offense, but, you know, it could be a businessman that takes it over and doesn't have a real feel for, you know, I'm just saying hypothetically. So it's like they really wanted somebody from the community to get these homes who knew how important they were to the community. Right. In April of that year, two lawyers, Rick Perry and Jim Richard, and they were actually from the community, bought the two houses for less than $260,000 each. With everything in it? With everything in it. Holy cow, that's a steal. Because they bought it from the, from the bank, bank at a sure. foreclosure sale. Perry moved his office into the Scott House and looked for managers to keep the Rhinal House as an inn. The Smiths took over management in October 2012, and I couldn't find when the Smiths left their position of managers or who's the manager of the inn now. But I did find a lot of hauntings. Oh, so, wow. I wonder... I'm sure you're going to go into what haunts there, but with all those artifacts, I can only imagine. That's exactly right. So the previous owner, Bonnie Moorhart, said in an interview with the Ocala Star Banner, I think the spirits are here to care for the building and to care for us. It's a protective thing. And then she added, but there are definitely different feelings at each house. The Scott house is the brightest of the two. And according to Moorhart, it's impossible to keep track of all the spirits that reside within the three-story house. Oh my gosh. There's a mysterious dressed-up woman, a young boy, and an old man. And there's, surprise, surprise, a woman in a white dress. La la la. Who, who guests have seen passing through walls and doors and peeking into the bathroom to, I guess, check on them. <laughs> 
think we've had a everything bath- all right in there. I don't think we've had a bathroom peeking ghost before. Oh no! <laughs> it's that woman in white. <laughs> She's nosy. <laughs> You're taking a little long in there. Everything okay? Everything coming out all right? <laughs> So more heart reported that she's heard footsteps, shouts, and doors slamming. Candles do not stay lit. Oh. Lights flicker on and off, and the front door has occasionally opened even after it's been locked. Ooh. Oh, that would be nerve-wracking. So the, spirits- <laughs> <laughs> the spirits like to move things around, furniture and rooms, and items get moved all the time from one room to the other. Not from one space to the other, but from one room literally oh to another. I hate that we never see these objects moving. Like, we hear all these stories about things moving from room to room or across the room or whatever, but it sucks that nobody actually sees that candlestick like floating tele- across. Teleport or something. Yeah. It's like, you don't physically, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. So there's there was a report from one of the managers that once when he was going down the stairs, he somehow tripped on something and he was headed straight into a glass of stained glass window. <gasps> oh, no. Suddenly, he felt two strong hands grab him and help him regain his balance. But when he looked back, there was no one there. Oh, that reminds me of that story in, Fort, <laughs> in Leavenworth when she fell down the stairs and somebody grabbed her and pulled her back. Yeah. Oh, Ex- wow. Yeah, exactly. The Rhinow house is a little different. Guests have reported hearing fighting and arguing in the rooms. Oh, no. Which kind of makes sense as all these antiques and artifacts, like you said, have been brought in and added to the house. I mean, maybe the Bali temple doesn't like being the gate to the inside <laughs> of a pyramid. I mean, you know, well, we're kind of mix and matching things here. My question <laughs> is, is this the house where the seven sisters lived? Because I can imagine a lot of fights going down with no, seven sisters. No, oh, it's the shoot. other one. It's the other one. So looking through the internet for hauntings at Seven Sisters, I found the following story from Logan on the website backpackeruniverse.com. And initially I thought, oh, this is good. I'm so going to use this. So his story goes like this. He checked into the Rhinau house and he was unpacking and he heard a moan. He thought it was coming from the hallway. No big deal. Then the moaning got louder and he realized it was coming from his bathroom. Oh no! He slowly walked to the bathroom and quickly turned on the light. The room was empty. At first, he sighed a sigh of relief. But, but then as he stood there, he saw a pair of fingers and a foot coming up from the the bathtub then a woman's head and shoulders appeared and what What? was really horrific was that it looked as though her flesh had begun to rot it's like the bath is giving birth to this rotting woman no she was creeping out of the bathtub oh my gosh it's like a bat oh it's like the grudge (laughs) she she was looking right at him when she growled what sounded like finally a brand new toy what the heck please tell me this is like as logan looked down at the woman's decaying hand he saw a bloody and dismembered doll boom oh gosh (laughs) (sighs) oh i thought it sounded like an excellent story to tell around a campfire yes And the comments that followed the story were supportive to this. One saying that perhaps, quote, ghost adventures could help him out. (laughs) Another saying, sure. (laughs) There's mom. 
You made that comment, didn't you? (laughs) No. (laughs) But some were really very upset about this horrific story. One such story came from Geister Marie Schmidt, and it said, quote, We operated the Seven Sisters Inn for four years, and this story is all rubbish. And then it goes on to say, as innkeepers, if there was one report of a rotting spirit in a bathtub, we would have known about it. The author made this story up. Attempting to get traffic to the website with pure lies, the cost of losing truthful reporting integrity. It's shameful and disrespectful to the beautiful spirits that actually live there. She's angry. Fake news. (laughs) If we would still be operating, this would have gone to our attorney. Oh my gosh. She was very upset about this because... There are spirits there. It is very haunted. Several paranormal groups have been there, but they're all very kind spirits. There's nothing, nothing like this stupid woman coming up in the bathtub. He totally made this up. Yeah, but let him. It's his blog. I mean, it's his website. Let him write what the heck he wants. Yeah, but they're deframing the house. I mean, I guess, you know, she said that they're... Our beautiful spirits that live there. She even mentioned that there were seven of them. Hmm, I wonder why. <laughs> seven sisters. If you're interested, rooms are available only by reservation. Rates run from $75 to $125. I didn't think that was very expensive. But just FYI, children younger than 14 as well as pets are not welcome. Oh, yeah, because... <laughs> Some kid's going to crawl into some, how do you pronounce that? Sarcophagi? Sarcophagus? Yeah, I can't say that word. Sarcophagus? Why does that sound wrong? I don't know. (laughs) But I guess they feel rather adamant about that. And you're right. I mean, they've got all these antiques and artifacts from all over the world. Who's to say these less than 14-year-olds are going? (laughs) I don't know. But it was just a weird, I thought it was a weird weird way to why would they? To phrase it, not welcome. Not welcome. <laughs> anyway, that's that's my story. And Seven Yay. Sisters. No, it, they're beautiful. I, of course, I'm going to post it on the website, but they're absolutely beautiful. Oh, wow. I love that kind of stuff. That's really fun. I know. You do. There you go. Well, thanks for ending on fun a happier stuff. note. <laughs> Yes, this will officially be our longest episode. So much so that the battery on my phone is dying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, like I said, all the resources from my story as well as mom's will be listed on our website. Everything is on our website from pictures from the episode as well as resources. You can join our Patreon and make a donation for us. Thank you, by the way. On our website, you can listen to episodes from our website. You can follow us on our website. So whenever we make a new post, you will you will get an email. It's all on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. You can send us messages on there. We'd love to hear from you. Any requests or your own personal stories, send them to us. There you go. All on one place. Yes. This was interesting. An, yeah, I was going to say a fun episode, but... No, it wasn't fun. It was interesting. I was really anxious to tell you because I've been researching this for so long. So now it's just like, bleh, it's out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know the feeling. Oh. All right, sweetie. Well, 
I'm happy that uh, Alex enjoyed his drink. Oh, yes. But um, anyway, virtual cheers to you, darling. Virtual cheers to you and all of our listeners, Mom. Yeah. Love you, kid.